Hey, I just want to say thank you for checking out this message today. I hope that it helps you, that it encourages you, and that you are able to learn a little bit more about who God is and why so many people throughout history have chosen to become followers of Jesus. If you enjoy this message and you want to hear more, you can find us on Facebook or YouTube, but ultimately you can find everything you need to know at clcwinnipeg.ca. There you can find more messages, you can find our social handles, ways to get connected to our church, and if you would like to give to this ministry, you can do that as well. And like I said before, I hope that you are encouraged by the message you're about to hear. God bless you. Hi everyone, my name is Scott, and I'm so excited to be coming to you today to talk about the book of Hosea. Today we're looking at this book as we continue our walk from Genesis to Revelation in our series that we've called Cover to Cover. And Hosea, it's a different book. It begins with a bit of a story in the first chapter. The second chapter is a poem. And then the third chapter is the conclusion of the story. And then after that, we have 11 more chapters that are just 11 more poems that are kind of building on what the metaphor of chapters one and three were. And if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea, we're going to read it today. It's not very long at all. And then I want to speak to you from what I hope is a bit of a different perspective. That may change your perspective on some things today. So we're going to open up with chapter one, verse two. It says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman, or like prostitute, she would have been a sex worker, and have children with her. For like an adulterous woman, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And then she ends up having two more children with him. And then we jump all the way to chapter three, and we're actually going to read the whole chapter. It's just five verses, though. So it said, this is from Hosea's perspective. The Lord said to me, go, show love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And we're going to talk about sacred raisin cakes a little bit later. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lefek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. This is a bit of a weird story. It, it's this story of Hosea and his wife, and he's asked to marry this woman specifically, and then... She leaves, and he goes back to get her. And it's all just this grand metaphor of how God and the Israelites and their relationship. And I've often read this story and thought of Hosea's perspective. He was a man of God. He was a prophet to the nations. And he was commanded by God to go and marry a prostitute. And the scandal that that would have been would have just, it's hard to imagine. In our modern context, we expect that Christians like us will be with people who hold similar values. The Bible clearly has a thread throughout it that implies that when we are looking to get married, 
that we ought to look for someone who holds similar values to us. And furthermore, we definitely expect that people in ministry will, will be with people who hold similar values to them. I can just imagine if a pastor came to church and said that they were going to get married to a prostitute, we would have a lot of questions. And honestly, that pastor may not be a pastor for very long after they made that decision. And do we think that them saying, God told me to marry a prostitute would be taken seriously? Probably not. But on the same hand, when a 15-year-old boy walks up to a girl in youth group and says, God told me that you should go on a date with me, do we take that seriously? Probably not. And when that same girl goes back to that boy after they've dated for a while and says that they should break up because God told her to, do we take that seriously? Probably not. It's easy to assume that these are people who are avoiding responsibility of their actions by trying to pin it on God. But in Hosea's case, he actually was told to marry Gomer. And maybe people didn't believe him, they didn't trust him, and they assumed that he was a liar. But Hosea walked in faith, believing that this plan of God's was what was actually best for his life. And that would have been really, really difficult for Hosea. But I actually don't really want to focus on Hosea today. Today I want to talk about Gomer. And honestly, I think that's because we're not Hosea in the story. Hosea is kind of a placeholder for God in the story. We're a lot more like Israel. We're a lot more like Gomer. And in Gomer's case, she knew where she was in life. She knew her place in society. Gomer would have absolutely known that she was a second-class citizen in society. Not only was she a woman, which already made her much, much less than a man in those days in particular, she was also a sex worker, which would have made her station in life to be even lower. And if Israel had been living as they should have been, following God's law, there should have been consequences for her. But instead, what happens is this prophet, this man of God, who maybe she was even afraid of, this man of God named Hosea, he comes along and he marries her and makes her the mother of his children because God told him to. And I can imagine at this time that Gomer felt pretty confused because she knew she didn't deserve this. And whether she was forced into promiscuity or chose it for herself before, she knew that she hadn't done anything to lead her into the life that Hosea was giving her. While she was off getting paid to give herself away, Hosea was praying and studying God's word. While she was off sleeping with other men, Hosea was devoting himself to declaring God's word to Israel. So then one day, Hosea comes and says, I want to make you my wife, and she gets married. But not long into that marriage, she slips back into her own life. And we're not sure why this happened. Maybe she enjoyed that life. Maybe it felt like it was her one chance at having some agency and some independence in her life. Instead of having to be faithfully devoted to Hosea, this man of God, she was able to choose to do what she wanted to with her body. Or maybe there was something outside of her marriage that she just felt like she wasn't receiving from Hosea. There's a poem in Hosea 2 about an adulterous woman. And in verse 5, this adulterous woman speaks and says, I will go after my lovers 
who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. It's totally possible that the things she got outside of the marriage that she had with Hosea just seemed better. She was out being wined and dined and shown a good time, and she didn't really want to come back to Hosea. Or maybe she just didn't feel up to being Hosea's wife. It's possible that the pressure of being the wife of a prophet to the nation got to her, and she didn't want to have to deal with that. And Hosea might have been so busy praying and prophesying that sometimes she just wanted to get away from all of that. And as she did, it began to spiral on her, and the shame that she felt drove her deeper and deeper into the life that she was living. And so whatever the reason it was, and we don't know, whether it was power or riches, or maybe even shame, she would slip away into the night and give herself up to strange men. And over and over, she began to cheat on Hosea. Whatever it was that caused her to do this, we see that Gomer believed a lie. For some reason, Gomer began to believe that she was not loved by Hosea. See, some of us, we actually believe the lie, and it is a lie, that we are not worthy of love because of what we have done. And why would we believe that we're not worthy of love? I, I thought of three reasons, three lies that we believe. First off, that we don't deserve love anymore. You know who we would probably all agree is worthy of love? A baby. And why? They haven't done anything. They haven't proven anything. They haven't accomplished anything. Yet, pretty much universally, we're able to look at infants and love them for exactly who they are. Especially if you're a parent. You hear so many stories of people becoming parents. And it feels like there's this whole new, like, untapped fountain of love that they have towards this child. And even if you're not really a baby person, you can probably agree that babies should be loved. They're vulnerable, they're cute. But as we grow up, we make choices that we can feel might make us less worthy of love. We may have been as babies and, and infants and toddlers and small children and adolescents, but along the way we make these decisions that we have a tendency to believe causes us to be less worthy of love. And we go into a spiral of shame. And this often happens because we fundamentally believe a lie about ourselves. Lies like, I'm not a good person. I'm not worth loving. I make life harder for everyone around me. No one wants to be around me. No one can help me. So we make one little mistake. And as we spiral down into shame, we end up telling ourselves again that we are the lie that we believe about ourselves. An example. Let's say you're not good with money. And you make a mistake with your money that you've made before. And you get mad at yourself for repeating this mistake because you should know better. And because you should know better, but you do these things anyways, you wish you had some self-control. And because you don't have any self-control, you start to believe that everything that's wrong in your life is your fault. And your life is bad because of you. And ultimately, you tell yourself that you're no good. See what just happened there? You made one little mistake, and instead of owning up to it and trying to repair it, you ended up telling yourself that you as a person are no good. And the more we do this, and the deeper that we get into it, the more we believe it. 
And a lot of people believe this. I think that's the reason why there's like this whole self-love movement. And that's a secular movement. That is apart from the church, but there are millions of dollars that are going into people trying to believe that they're worthy of love, that they're worth themselves loving. And I think that the Bible is, is way ahead. I think that secularism is just trying to catch up to the Bible in that area, but that's a, a different conversation. But a lot of people believe that they're not worthy of love. I've worked in a few different places over the years, and every once in a while it would come up that I go to church or that I'm a Christian. And anytime that happened, there was only a few responses that I would get. And the kinds of phrases that most often stood out to me when people began to talk about the church or when they found out that I was a Christian were things like this. I would probably burn up if I walked into a church. Oh, if I walked into a church, I think I'd be struck by lightning. Like, I'm way too far gone for church. Seriously, I heard those kinds of things all the time when the topic of God would come up. And what fundamentally is at work there is a lie that people are too far gone to be loved by God. They've made too many mistakes in their life to be worthy of love from a perfect, loving Father. That brings us to our second lie. Lie number two is that God doesn't know what's best for me. This is a lie that's really easy to believe, especially today. In Canada today, there are so many people that tell you that they know what's best for you. Everywhere you look, there's someone that's asking for your attention and telling you that they have the one thing that your life is missing. And it is in every area of your life. It's been estimated that the average person sees 6,000 to 10,000 advertisements every single day. And what a lot of those ads have as an underlying message is this. If you buy this, your life will be better. It works for food, for diets, for clothing, cars, hotels, trips, books, kitchen items, subscriptions, and everything else you can imagine. So we believe the lie that all of these things the world is telling us are going to make our lives better. And whatever narrative it is that you have chosen to believe will make your life better, in turn, causes us to behave as though God doesn't exist. So real quick, let's go back to the sacred raisin cakes in Hosea 3, verse 1. This was a bit of a luxurious item back then. If you had a raisin cake, it was like a treat, a bit of pleasure that you might indulge in. And by referring to these as sacred raisin cakes, we can assume that they were probably involved in some kind of idol worship. So the Israelites were taking these raisin cakes and they were living these luxurious, indulgent lives. And in turn, they were worshiping idols. So in turning away from God and worshiping idols, they believed that they were doing really well on their own. And we do that too. Our lives are often comfortable. We have what we need. We we do what we want. We do what makes us feel good. And so we ignore what God may actually be asking of us. Because God often asks us to do things that don't feel good right now. So we don't listen. And we do what we want when we want to. But this, when we do things that are outside of God's will for our life, that's sin. 
And Ignatius of Loyola defined sin this way. Define it as the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. What God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. It's an unwillingness to trust in God. And it's so easy to believe that God's plan for our lives is second rate. It's too hard. It's too out there. What we find is that following God's plan for our lives is proven over and over and over again to bring the deepest happiness that we can find on this side of heaven. And the Israelites, they ran into consequences. They were indulgent. They were selfish. They were worshiping idols. But what they found was that God actually punished them for their unfaithfulness. He was so tired of giving them more chances and so tired of them not loving him back that he actually allowed them to be taken into exile. And much like the Israelites found, we find that when we sin and when we run away from God, there's consequences. Never mind the eternal consequences, but we can find that here on earth, our dishonesty gets exposed. Our unfaithfulness gets found out. Our cheating is punished. When we sin, it eventually comes back to us and we feel the consequences. That takes us to our third observation here. Number three, I think we actually choose shame sometimes. Honestly, sometimes it feels easier to live in shame than it does to be set free. I've dealt with this. I can think of a few very specific times in my life where I'd done something wrong and rather than come clean about it, I just burrowed myself into shame and into hiding. For example, when I was 16, I got my driver's license. And those first few years of driving, they were a little rough. They are for lots of people. And I, I think everyone kind of knows that new drivers tend to be some of the more dangerous people on the road. And while I never had any major collisions, I had a few moments on the road that like, I'm not exactly proud of. And there's two that stand out to me in particular. And they were both on the same car that my dad owned. So one time I was using his car and I, I turned a little too sharp while leaving a parking lot. And as I was doing that, I skimmed a very hard, very icy snowbank, which left what I thought was an almost imperceivable bump on the passenger door. Well, you know who perceived it? My dad, almost right away. A few days after I hit that snowbank, he went to wash his car and he uncovered a dent in his door that hadn't been there before. And he started to think of how it might have gotten there, leading him right to his teenage son who had decided not to tell him that he had recently had a small run-in with a pile of snow. And this wasn't actually the first time that this had happened either. I'd also gently tapped one of those poles at the end of a gas bar one day, you know, like while pulling up to the pump. And this left a small crack in the bumper that I had hoped my dad wouldn't notice. And each of those times, I remember that my dad wasn't so upset that I had damaged his car, but he was more upset that I hadn't told him. Because I was scared to tell him. And I think most of all, I didn't want to own up to the fact that I would have to be the one to pay for the repair. I didn't want to have to face the consequences. But both those times I learned a valuable lesson. You can't be forgiven if you can't confess. If I had just owned up to either of those situations, I'm very sure I would have fared a lot better. But I didn't. I hid. And I snuck around. And I hoped 
that he would also maybe hit the pole at the end of a gas bar so that he wouldn't realize the damage that had been made was mine, not his. But that didn't happen. And in that moment, what I was experiencing was that though while I didn't feel good, it seemed a lot easier to just live in shame and to hide. It's easier to hold shame than it is to be brave and own up to our mistakes. You see, the first humans, the first time that anybody on earth sinned and stepped outside of God's will for their life, they hit Adam and Eve in the garden. They eat the fruit, and what do they do? They immediately go hide. And God has to go find them and actually like, go and search for them so that they could actually live up to the consequences. The only way to get through shame is to confess and to allow ourselves to be forgiven. And in personal conflict, people may not always forgive. Because people are difficult to deal with, and they can hold bitterness for a long time. But as Christians, in this space, we should always forgive. And even better, when we bring our failures and our shame before God, we always find forgiveness. There is no end to God's forgiveness. In the story of Hosea, Gomer was so far gone. She was so far removed from the love of her husband. Yet Hosea comes back to her. God tells Hosea to go and set her free from the debts she has incurred, to go buy her back and to make her his wife once again. And Hosea pledges himself to her and he restores her. And I just have three really quick points that I think we can learn from this. First off, God loves us. 1 John 4 verse 18 says, Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is only for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. When we actually experience God's love in its fullness, we know that we can approach God in all of our shame and brokenness and find that, number two, God restores us. Romans 10 verse 11 says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we're following Jesus and doing what he commanded, we find that there is no more condemnation. And this is because, number three, God is at work. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. When we follow Jesus, we also begin to live out the purpose that Jesus came here to fulfill. Jesus read in the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry. It's kind of like this grand arrival into ministry from the book of Isaiah. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recover, recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When we call ourselves followers of Jesus and we have determined that we are going to demonstrate the life of Jesus in our lives, the priorities that we take on are no longer sinful or worldly or pursuing the riches and satisfaction that the world tells us we need to. It is to proclaim good news. It's to proclaim liberty to captives. It's to heal the sick, to pursue liberty for all of those who are oppressed. 
So in conclusion, when we know God, and when we know that God loves us and is restoring us and is at work in us, when we know that God, we will know that we can't ever be too far gone. You can't ever get so far away from God's love that you can't be forgiven. There is nothing that you've done that God won't forgive. No matter how much you feel that you have messed up in your life, God is always trying to restore you. And if you earnestly seek and you pray, God will hear your prayer. So today I pray that you would feel God's love and his blessing and his forgiveness in your life. It's an experience that nothing in this world could ever hope to match. And so before we go, I just want to leave you with this verse. It's the very last verse in the book of Hosea from chapter 14, verse 9. It says, Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, and the rebellious stumble in them. It's my prayer that we would be people who walk in the righteous ways of the Lord. God, we just thank you for the truth of your word. God, for this story of Hosea where sometimes we might look at ourselves and we want to believe that we're the heroes of the story, that we want to believe that we're like Hosea in the story, but God, time and time again, we find that we are Gomer. Time and time again, we find that we are like the Israelites who are running from you, who are focused more on what the world has to offer us than what the creator of the world does. We find that we are more focused on, on our own shame and our fear than we are in your perfect love. And I pray that each and every person who is listening to this message, wherever they find themselves, that they would know your love today. It's a love that changes us that makes us whole, that makes us new. And I pray, Lord, today that you would be making people new today. In your name we pray. Amen.